Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does, sorry, who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For For as many as have sinned without the law will perish also without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And we'll stop there. So just again, by way of reminder, we are in now in the body of Romans where we've gone through the introduction and everything. And we're now in the meat of what Paul wants to say to the church at Rome. And uh, again, uh, that reminder that verses uh, 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are... Paul's theme statement where he says that the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Now, if it sounds like I'm repeating this over and over again each week, it's because it's important to know this. Repetition is how we learn. The gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. We see God's righteousness revealed in his salvation of believers as he gives them the righteousness that they need in order to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But we also see God's righteousness revealed in his judgment of unbelievers as he righteously judges those who have rebelled against him, who have sinned against him, and who remain uh, impenitent and continue in their sin. So Romans is really just a detailed exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it is, what it means, and how we're to live in light of what it means and how we are to live in light of the good news. And that is what the gospel is at its heart. The gospel is good news. That's what the word literally means. It means a good report, a good message, a good word, good news. The advent of Jesus Christ into history is indeed good news. Because in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's what Paul says in Galatians. This is good news that that the son of God is breaking into history. That the, the second person of the Trinity, the, the eternal word of God, as we see in John 1, comes in, becomes flesh, 
breaks into this age. Earlier in Romans, we learned that Jesus Christ entered into this world. He entered into this age. He was born in the flesh as the son of David, descended from David according to the flesh. And then that Jesus Christ then entered the age to come, or the, the, the world that will come, the new age, uh, by way of resurrection, as, he, as Paul says in Romans 1.4, declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit by his resurrection. His mission was to save a lost and dying humanity. That's what he came for. Again, to use the reference from the Blues Brothers, he was on a mission from God. He came to deliver and save his people from their sins. And all of this was to fulfill what was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, that one would come, a Messiah, one in the seat of David, one who was uh, in the line of the Davidic kings, one who would be the prophet to come, one who would be the, this servant that you see in Isaiah, this suffering servant that would come and take the sins of his people and deliver them from their sin and misery. Now, also, as we have been saying all along, as we've been looking throughout Romans, particularly Romans 1, 2, and 3, good news isn't good unless you know how bad the bad news is. In other words, if at last year, at this time, someone proclaimed, let's say we were able to go back in the time machine to 2019, August 2019. And if someone in August 2019 said, hey, I found a cure for COVID, people would be like, what's COVID? What are you talking about? You know, it's good news that we found a cure for COVID, but there was no problem. We didn't understand what the bad news was. Now, if the, someone came out today and said they found a cure for COVID, we'd be dancing in the streets with masks, of course, socially distancing and everything. But we would be dancing in the streets if someone found a cure for COVID. However, like I said, if someone said that today, that would be the best news in 2020. It would make 2020, because you know, I, I, I'm, I'm right, I don't know about you all, but I'm ready for a refund on 2020. I want to get my money back. Let's start 2021, okay? I don't know. But anyway, in Romans 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is detailing the bad news. So in what we're going to be talking about today, what we talked about the last couple of weeks, what we'll probably talk about the next couple of weeks, is still in this kind of bad news section. So it may sound a little depressing, but the good news is coming. I promise you, Lord willing, when we get to Romans chapter 3, the latter half of that, will be abounding in good news. But until then, we need to know how bad the bad news is. If Jesus came to save his people from their sin, we need to know just how bad sin really is. And sin is the biggest existential threat that we have facing the human race in the history of the human race. It is worse than covid it is worse than SARS, it is worse than MERS, it is worse than Ebola, it is worse than AIDS, all of those combined. Sin is a much deeper existential threat to the human race than any of these viruses. Sin is not a physical virus, it is a spiritual virus. It attacks the mind and the soul, and it has far-reaching effects in the physical world. All of the problems we face in this world as a race, as the human race, find their root cause in sin. So in this first major section of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul is going to show us the problem of sin. And the argument that he's making here is that the entire human race is enslaved to sin, both Jews and Gentiles. Now he starts with the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 through the end of that chapter. 
But the argument he's going to make is that the entire human race is enslaved to sin. We all have inherited the guilt of Adam. We all inherit the corrupt nature of Adam. And then based on those two things, we all actually commit sins in our lives. We add to the offense that we already have from birth. As a result, then we await the righteous judgment of God for our sin. Now, if you remember from Romans 1, 18 through 32, that judgment is already currently being revealed. That's what he says in Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is being revealed now against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It is currently being revealed. Now, as we come to Romans 2, 1 through 16, we're going to see that God's wrath against the sin of the Jews is, in a sense, it's hidden. It's being reserved. That's what we learned about in the first five verses. It's hidden because of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. God withholds judgment from his people. He doesn't excuse it. He's withholding it. He's, he's being kind to his people in the, in the hopes that they would repent of their sin. So this hiddenness aspect of God's righteous wrath against sin led the Jews then to thinking they were somehow exempt from God's wrath, that they were somehow special, that they could sort of sin and get away with it because they were God's people. But as Paul lays out the case, as we saw last week, Romans 1, 2 through 5, that kindness was not sort of a winking of the eye toward their sin. He wasn't saying, well, okay, I guess boys will be boys or whatever. You know, you're my people. I guess you're going to sin, but I've covenanted myself to you. So, all right, I guess I'll have to deal with it. No, that kindness, as Paul says, was meant to lead them to repentance. It was meant to lead them to repentance. Instead of facing God's righteous wrath in the here and now, they were storing up wrath. That's what Paul says. Just like Matthew says, you store up your treasures in heaven. They were storing up wrath because they refused to repent of their sin. And it says they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That, again, that, that idea of revelation, which is key through these first three chapters, it's being revealed to the Gentiles now as they commit sin and as God gives them over to their sin. And it's being hidden, but it will be revealed to the Jews on the day of wrath unless they repent. A reckoning is coming, and you can either repent now or you can face judgment later, which will be much, much worse. So now as we look at verses 6 through 16, uh, this section can, of Romans can be essentially broken down into two parts. So in verses 6 through 11, uh, you have what is the principles of God's judgment, how, how God judges, what his, what his principles will be as he applies his judgment. And then 12 through 16, you'll see uh, judgment in relation to the law of God. Now, again, both of these sections flow out of what was said last week earlier uh, in verses 1 through 5. In particular, as you look at verse 6, you've, uh, in, uh, you've got, it's sort of like part of a sentence there. So verse 5 ends in the middle of a sentence. So verse 6 kind of picks up on that thought where he says, he will render to each one according to his work. So if you read 5 and 6 together, you get, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself, wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. 
So on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will render to each one according to his deeds. So here is the principle for God's judgment, his righteous judgment. Judgment will be based on works. God judges you based on what you do in this life. That's what he says here. He will render to each one according to their works. Now, maybe this might sound foreign to our ears to hear that judgment is based on works. Maybe you're thinking, I thought salvation or judgment was based on whether or not one believed on Jesus Christ or one didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that's true up to a point. But people don't go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They go to hell or they will go to hell because they are sinners, because they have unrepented sin in their lives, because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ. God doesn't say, well, you didn't believe in Jesus, you go to hell, because that would be, in a sense, unfair to the people who have never heard of Jesus. He sends people to hell because they are sinners. We are born in sin. Again, we inherited Adam's guilt. We have a corrupt nature. We commit actual sins. We are guilty. Heaven or hell, salvation or damnation is based on what you've done in your life. Now, faith in Jesus Christ determines whether or not you face the righteous judgment of Christ or of God clothed in your own filthy rags of self-righteousness, using Isaiah 64, where all of our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. So faith in Jesus Christ determines whether you face the judgment of God in your own works, or if you face the judgment of God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that you receive through faith. This is very important. Just to prove and show that judgment is based on works, consider some of the following passages. I have the, the references. I believe the references are in the notes, but the actual texts are not. But I'll read them to you. Job 34.11 says, for he, that is God, repays man according to his work and makes him to find a reward according to his way. Or Psalm 62, 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And he will not render to each, will he not render to each man according to his deeds? And then in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Seems there's a running theme going on here, that everyone will be judged based on what they have done in this life. And if you think, well, that's Old Testament. Okay, I'll give you a New Testament reference. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Consider what our Lord says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus answers the three questions that the disciples put to him. The disciples come up to him and they say, hey, Lord, look at this lovely temple. Isn't this temple lovely? And, and Jesus says, well, there's going to come a day where there will be not one stone upon another in this temple. It will be all tossed into the sea. So then in, in verse 3 of chapter 24, the disciples ask him, it says, now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Lord, will you tell us then when these things will be? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they asked him three questions. When will this be? In other words, when will this temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the, the, the sign of the end of the age? Now, if you please uh, keep your finger in Romans 2 and turn to Matthew 25. Again, just to prove that this principle that God judges based on works is clear. And this is what Jesus taught in Matthew 25 at the end of the Olivet Discourse where he talks about um, when the Son of Man will return, starting in verse 31. This is a very well-known passage. It's the passage on the sheep and the goats. Uh, It says here, starting in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you uh, from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When, we, when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer, saying to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You can turn back to Romans 2. The principle is there. God Jesus, when he comes at the end of the age, will reward. Judgment will be based on whether you've done good or whether you've done evil. That's the principle of judgment. God's righteous judgment will be based on works. And again, that's what Paul says here very clearly in Romans 2.6. Now, as you look at verses 7 through 10, he says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what these verses are doing is basically elaborating on what verse 6 says already. And again, notice that in verses 7 and 10, Paul says that, Those who do good will receive eternal life. They will receive glory. They will receive honor. Conversely, in verses 8 and 9, those who fail to do good will receive wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress, both to the Jew and to the Greek. Now, the question that comes up when considering this passage in Romans is this. 
Are the good works that Paul is speaking of here in these verses, are they hypothetical or are they real? In other words, is this sort of like, you know, well, you're going to reward those who do good, but we know no one can do good. So we know that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about a hypothetical obedience or is this a real obedience? In other words, people who do good things. That's the $64,000 question when people come to this passage. We need to try to understand what this passage is teaching us. Now, it would seem that, again, if you consider the theme of this section as a whole, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 320, it would seem that Paul is speaking about hypothetical good works. Again, you can look ahead a bit to Romans 3. Uh, it may be on the same page. You may have to turn a page. But look at Romans 3, uh, verses 10 through 20. Lord willing, like I said, we'll get here in a few weeks. But we could take a peek ahead in the first place. And Paul will say here, as it is written in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. And that's really the coup de grace, right, of the whole thing. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, again, as you look through this passage, you see these very absolute statements, right? None righteous, no, not one, verse 10. None who seeks after God, verse 11. None who does good, no, not one, verse 12. There is no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. It seems as if then that Paul must be speaking of a sort of a hypothetical good works that he's talking about in Romans 2, 6 through 10. Because by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's what he says in Romans 3.20. But again, remember what we're talking about here are principles of God's judgment, not the means of justification. How is God going to judge his, his creatures? That's what we're talking about here. Not how is God going to save his creatures? How how a person is made right before God. If you remember three weeks ago when we looked at Romans 1, 14 through 17, we discussed this concept of the works of the law, this, this phrase that Paul uses throughout Romans and throughout his letters, works of the law, which refer to our attempts to earn righteousness before God by keeping the law. In that lesson, we said that works of the law, by our own law keeping, no one will be justified. No one can be made right before God by doing works of the law. That is, a, that is clear. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.20. That's what he said. That's what he says in a lot of his letters. No one will be justified by the works of the law. In other words, if you're relying on your own fleshly obedience to carry the weight on the last day, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to meet for a very violent awakening, I think, on the last day if you kind of come there with a barrel of your own good works, God's going to say, get that out of here. I don't want that. 
The cumulative case Paul is building here in Romans 1, 18 through 320 is that no one, based on their own fleshly efforts, could be made righteous before God. So hence, on the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the last day, when God judges our works, the fire of God's judgment will consume our weak fleshly attempts at righteousness. But, capital B, but, let's consider for a moment if Paul is actually speaking about real obedience, real honest-to-goodness obedience to the law. In other words, such obedience that comes from a regenerate heart. Again, remember, Romans, 6, uh, Romans 2, 6-11 through 11 is speaking about the principles of God's judgment. Paul is not yet speaking of justification. That comes later in Romans 3-5. through 5. And justification is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we believe. But judgment is based on works. It's based on performance. Now, of course, we believe that a person who is saved, justified, is done so by faith, not by works, right? Amen to that. We, are, we, we, we relish in, the, in, in glory in the truth that we are saved not by our works, but by faith in Christ. But we also believe that a person who is justified produces good works. That's what the Heidelberg says. Heidelberg, Lord's Day 33, question 91. The the catechism asks us, what are good works? Well, good works are those only which proceed from true faith and are done according to the law of God unto his glory and not such as rest in our own opinion or the commandments of men. So good works are those that come out of a true faith. They come out of a regenerate heart. They come out of thankfulness for everything that God has done for us. So even though we believe that a person who has been saved by grace through faith can do good works, we also acknowledge that due to indwelling sin, the subject we'll address much later in Romans chapter 7, our obedience, though real, is not perfect. We can do good works by grace through faith. Again, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to conform us more and more to the image of of Christ, as the trials that he brings into our lives are such to sort of wean us from the world and sort of push our focus heavenward, we also know that these good works that we do are not perfect. Again, the Catechism speaks about that as well. Lord's Day 44, question 114. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? This is after the exposition of the Ten Commandments. So now the catechism says, can a converted person keep these commandments perfectly? Catechism says, no. Even the holiest of men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of such obedience. Yet so, with earnest purpose, they begin to live, not according to some, but according to all of the commandments of God. And I believe that's what Paul is speaking of here in verses 7 and 10, when he speaks of God rewarding those who by patience and well-doing and everyone who does good. Now, here's an important thing to keep in mind. We ought never, ever, ever to think that God is rewarding our good works, that his rewarding our good works is under some kind of obligation to us. Remember, what does the Catechism say? It says, even the holiest of people have only a small beginning in such obedience. The best person you can think of, if you could think of the most righteous, holy person you can ever think of in the history of mankind, that person has just a teeny tiny, has taken a few baby steps 
on his way to perfect obedience. So, you know, what does that say about the rest of us? We've taken even fewer baby steps, right? But God graciously rewards our good works because we are already accepted in Christ. We don't do good good works to be accepted. We do good works because we are already accepted. That's the key. Okay, God in Christ accepts our good works because he loves us already in Christ. We are already received in Christ. So our stumbling, fumbling, bumbling attempts at holiness are seen through the lens of Christ's perfect righteousness, which is why the Father is pleased to accept them. Now, many of us are parents here, and I would imagine we've had children when they were small, and our child, we love our children, we love them dearly, we would do anything for our children, right? And if our child said, you know, said, hey, daddy, or hey, mommy, I drew a picture of you, and you look at the picture, and it's this kind of, you know, crooked little stick figure with a weird smile, maybe, you know, it's not colored right, and the hair looks weird, and you would look at that now, if you're looking at that objectively, you would say, This looks nothing like me. Take this back and do it again. But we wouldn't say that to our child, right? No, we'd say, thank you, dear. And you put it up on their fridge proudly, right? That's God accepting our fumbling, bumbling, ugly attempts at good works, uh, uh, this weird little stick figure of good works that we're trying to do. He says, thank you, daughter. Thank you, son. Thank you for giving thankful obedience to me. I know it's not perfect. It's nothing like what I would truly expect from from you, but I love you in my son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put that up on my fridge here, and I'm going to display it proudly because you are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you. That's what we mean here. So now notice what Paul says in verses 9 and 10 when he says, the Jew first and also the Greek. And this echoes what he had said earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, when he said that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And this phrase is important because as he says in verse 11, God shows no partiality. God is not uh, a partial judge. He is an impartial judge. This is a direct shot. Remember, we were talking about how the Jew thought that God's kindness, that God's forbearance, that God not judging them for their sins was sort of because they were his chosen people and they felt they had a free pass. Well, this is a direct shot at the Jew who thought that they had a free pass. That, that God was somehow great on a curve. In fact, if anything, the Jew is going to be more responsible as we're going to see in just a moment. God's judgment comes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And it, you know, it's, it's what he says here. First Peter says this in four. First uh, Peter four seventeen he says judgment is coming and it begins at the household of God. No, the Jew doesn't get a free pass. In fact, they will be the first ones in the docket when 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 the trial starts. So now we look at verses twelve through sixteen, as we will now address and look at judgment and the law. So in verse twelve, you notice here it says, "For as many have sinned without the law, so on and so forth." This just tells us that Paul is continuing his thought from the previous verses. How does God show no partiality? First, he doesn't play favorites when it comes to the national origin. The Jews are not exempted from the revelation of God's righteous judgment just because they're Jews. And then secondly, he judges people based on what they know of God's law. 
That's what he says in verse 12. For as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Now, my wife knows this, and maybe some of you also know this too. I'm a huge comic book fan, and I love superhero movies. And one of my favorite superhero movies are the original Spider-Man movies from the early 2000s. And there's this famous line in there that comes out of the comic books where uh, Uncle Ben talks to Peter, and he says, with great power comes great responsibility. And the idea here is that the Jews have great responsibility because they've received great privilege from God. That's the point. That's the principle that's at work here. Far from grading on a curve, the Jews are going to be held to a higher standard of conduct because they have been given God's law. They will be judged by the law because they have given, they've been given the law. However, God does not excuse the Gentiles because they do not have the law. To the one who has the law, that is the Jews, they will be judged by the law. They will be judged on what, they, what has been revealed to them. This is another principle of judgment, too. The more light you have, the more you are responsible for. The more God has revealed to you, the more you're going to be responsible for on the day of judgment. And since they have the very law of God, that is the standard by which they're going to be judged. God gave them the law. That's how God is going to judge them. But to the one who does not have the law, that is the Gentiles, they will be judged without the law. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to be judged. They're just going to be judged on a different standard of judgment. For example, we here in the United States of America cannot judge people in other countries based on our laws, right? Just because someone in Canada or someone in France doesn't observe the First Amendment, we're not going to charge them with violations of freedom of speech. It just doesn't work. Our laws don't apply to other countries. And then in another direct hit against the pride of the Jews, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might think that sounds a lot like James, right? Be doers of the law, not hearers only. And yes, and that would be right. It is echoing James a little bit there. Hearers of the law is a direct reference to the Jews because they heard the law proclaimed in their synagogues every week. The equivalent would be people who come to church every week. You hear the gospel preached. You hear the word explained, but it doesn't affect your life in any way. A hearer of the law is not good enough. You can't just say, you can't go up to God and say, well, I heard the law, okay, isn't that good enough? I mean, I I heard it. (laughs) No. I mean, what good is it to you if you go out and you commit murder, and then when you're brought before the judge, you say, well, your honor, I I know that the law says that murder is illegal. Isn't that good enough for me? I've heard the law. I've read the law. I know what it says. Judge is still going to say, no, you're still guilty of murder. And again, verse 13 alludes back to what Paul has said in verses 7 through 10, that judgment is based on works. It is is only the one who does the law who will be justified. Now, one can rightfully ask, how can the Gentiles who by definition do not have the law be judged? What does Paul mean when it says that that they will be judged or they will perish without the law? Well, Paul answers that in verses 14 and 15. When he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, 
are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. So what does Paul here mean when he says, by nature, the Gentiles do what the law requires? Is he saying that the Gentiles are somehow able to produce good works that conform to the law of God? I don't think so, because we believe that, again, we believe that men and women are born sinners. As we've said earlier, they have a corrupt nature. They have inherited guilt. But I think what Paul here is referring to is something we said in a previous lesson. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about general revelation and we spoke about uh, common grace. These things that, that are sort of common to all people. General revelation speaks of the revelation that we see in creation, the revelation that we see uh, you know, when you perceive the creation, the creation speaks to the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. And of course, common grace is a grace that the kindness that God shows to all people, regardless of whether or not they're, they're believers or not, in, in that he gives the reins both to the wicked and to the, and to the kind and to the good. Well, we see both general revelation and common grace on display here in verses 14 and 15. General revelation is seen in that God has written the law on the hearts of all of his creatures. Every person born who is born in the image of God has the law of God written on their hearts. Now, it's corrupted because of sin, but it's still there. Humanity is born with a conscience. Humanity can tell right from wrong. It is the reason why even unbelievers can perform outward acts of goodness and charity in the world. And of course, common grace is seen in that they, by nature, do what the law requires. As we said, God restrains the worst impulses of human sin by his common grace. He restrains the, the depth of the sin that people commit. Unless, of course, they commit too much sin, then God hands them over. We talked about that, how God sort of lets go. and says, okay, you're, you're not going to repent. You're going to continue to sin and go down in this downward spiral of sin and misery. I'm going to let you go, and you're going to face the consequences of your actions. So what's the point? The point is simply this, that there is a standard of judgment for the Gentile who has not the law. And that standard is the human conscience in which the law is written on the hearts of all mankind. I think it's no accident that every civilization in human history has had prohibitions against murder, against stealing, and respect for family and authority. These are common things that you see in all civilizations, in all points in history. But what we're seeing here in these verses is that a day is coming when God will judge all men. That's what he's going to say in verse 16 here. He's going to judge the Jews according to the law of God that was graciously given to them by God. And he's going to judge the Gentiles according to the law of God that is written on their hearts. So no one's going to slip through the cracks. No one is going to be able to, to go up before God and say, well, I'm sorry, uh, God, you have no reason to, to judge me because of this, that, or the other thing. As Paul says in verse 16, on that day... When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So what secret will be revealed? Because God will reveal it on the day of judgment. It will be revealed. It's hidden now, but all the secrets, thoughts, and intentions of our hearts will be revealed 
on the day of judgment when God comes. It's kind of a frightening thought when Jesus said in one point in the gospel, he said that we will be judged by every word we have spoken, every thought that we have in our heart. I mean, all these things, you know, we, we can present a, a good face to the front, right? We can, to the world, we can present, well, look at this person. He's, you know, he's kind, he's well, he, he keeps his grass mowed, you know, perfectly. And, and he sweeps up his clippings and he walks little old ladies across the street and all this stuff. But who knows what goes on in the hearts of men, right? Who knows what goes on in the hearts of people? The point is that on that day, the secrets of our hearts will be revealed in judgment. And that's all I have for this morning. Again, like I said, it's still bad news. The good news is coming, right? The good news is in chapter 3, verse 21, when God says, but now. I'm peeking ahead because I want to give you a little bit of good news so you don't think this is all very depressing. But this, this but now in verse 21 is, is awesome because Anytime you see the word but in the Bible, it's usually going to change the story. You're going from bad to good. And here he's going to say, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. In, in, uh, is being revealed, being witnessed by the law of prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe for there is no difference. He goes on and on and on. But the point is, is that there will come a day. And, and the gospel is there. So even though judgment is coming on all people, there is a way to escape that judgment. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. So hold on. We'll get there when we get to Romans 3. But still, Paul needs to develop this bad news a little bit further in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 as we get into that. So let us break here. And then we will uh, pick up again in verse 17. My plan next week is to finish chapter 2. So we'll see how successful I am in that. But until then... Let us pray and get ready to start worship.